It is my honor this morning to get to preach the Word to you. We're going to be looking at Psalm 23, Psalm 23, so you guys can flip along there. And while you're doing that, we'll lay out some groundwork for what the book of Psalms really means for us, all right? The Psalms are the songbook of Israel. They were meant to be sung by, with, and over the people of Israel. Sometimes these songs were lamentations, crying out to God for the wrongs that were done to them. Sometimes they were praises to God for things He had done, things He had promised to them. Sometimes they were memorial for the things that God, the, the big moments that God had worked. And sometimes they would proclaim the things that God would do for them in His faithfulness to them. And so you may be thinking, okay, great, these songs were written to the ancient Jews, the nation of Israel. What does that have to do with me? Well, these songs are preserved in Scripture for us. And so, yes, God wrote these so that we can read them and we can actually get something from the book of the Psalms. But even further than that, as Romans 11 shows, Christian believers are grafted into the tree of true Israel. Let's take a brief look at Romans 11, 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear." For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again." For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So Paul here is discussing the olive tree as Israel. The, the, the cultivated olive tree is true Israel. The wild olive tree is all of the Gentiles who would come to faith in Jesus Christ. The, the, tribe, the tribes of Israel were not just saved because they were the tribes of Israel. They were, they were saved by their belief in the coming Messiah, like we are saved in, the, in faith by the Messiah who has already come. And so we are one tree grafted in with the people of Israel. And as part as the, as of this ingrafting, the eternal promises of God that are given to us in His Word are meant for all of us as well. If we have faith in God, if we are His people, then we are meant to read and sing these psalms along with the believers of Israel. So, in light of this reality, that the psalm was meant for us to proclaim with the ancient Israelites, let us stand and read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord is my shepherd. To a culture that was ingrained in animal husbandry, and to David, the author of this psalm, who is himself a shepherd early in his life, this speaks to the full provision that, the, that God provides for his flock. So this leaves a, a big question, who is the flock of God? Jeremiah, or psalm 79.13 says that Israel is the flock of God. But as we've already seen, Jeremiah 50, verse 6, uh, says that my people have, hath been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill, and they have forgotten their resting place. So it's not just being of Israel. It's the believing Israel. The evil kings and the religious leaders led some of Israel away from the one true God into false idols. These are some of the branches that were broken off that Paul talked about in Romans 11. And he was, they continue, these, these religious leaders continued to fall away from the true God and rejected Jesus Christ even until Paul's day. That is why um, not all of Israel is truly of Israel. Let's look at John 10, verses 14 through 18 for more information about who else is in the flock of God. John 10, 14 through 18. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my, down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay, my my, I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Note specifically in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Jesus was speaking here to Pharisees. We see it in John 9. He was speaking to the religious Jews that were rejecting him. He was speaking to the lost sheep of Israel. And they were hating him because he was drawing people away from them, away from their, society, their religion, and following him, the one true Messiah. So, he, he speaks of the other fold, sheep of another fold. This is the Gentile believers. The Gentiles would be true Israel. They would be one flock with God under one shepherd at the end of verse 16 when they believe in the Messiah. While we are not the ethnic people of ethnic Israel, we are a part of true Israel, the elect people of God that he calls out from across all nations and tongues. And what does it mean to be a sheep of God? What does it mean to be his sheep? Well, sheep are utterly dependent on their shepherd. They have no way of defense against predators. 
They are fearful and easily frightened. They have no way of knowing where to find food or water. They follow other sheep mindlessly, and they get lost easily. Sheep are incredibly naive and are unable to care for themselves. A story that shows this, and I don't know that this is a true story 100%, but it seems really realistic. Uh, in Turkey, there was a, a bunch of sheep on a hill, and one sheep decided he was just going to jump off. So he just flung himself off the, off the hill. And then 1,499 other sheep followed that sheep off the hill. And one by one, they kept jumping and falling, but only the first 450 died because then there was a big pile of wool at the bottom. <laughs> so the others landed, and they were safe, but it just shows how foolish sheep are. They will just jump off this cliff to their own demise, not thinking about what's going to happen after, right? And I don't, know if, I don't know about you, but I can definitely relate with that kind of sheep once in a while in my life. Just reckless and foolish in my decision-making and not caring about the repercussions of what I, what, I, what I have done. So, we need to be utterly dependent on our shepherd. We need to trust in his provision. And there's four ways in this psalm that we will talk about God giving us the protection of the shepherd. There's four actions, and I, I like, a, like a, a real pastor, I gave you four alliterated Ps, all right? So, protection, provision, propitiation, and, and pioneering, all right? That last one's a stretch, I know. So, uh, David here in verses 2 through 3 of Psalm 23 gives us these four actions that the shepherd does for us. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, and he leads me in paths of righteousness. So, let's look at protection. He makes me lie down in the green pastures. He makes me lie down. If we are restless and endangering ourselves, he will make us lie down in the green pasture and rest in what he has given us. The green pastures show the safety that God provides, and while God's protection may not look as comfortable and as easy as we may appreciate, he will preserve his people as he pleases. Look through the scriptures. It's fill, fill, full of times that God continually saves his people from utter destruction. The three young Jews in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were under threat of being thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not worship the false idol that the king had made. And so the king goes to punish them by throwing, in, throwing them into this furnace, and he heated the furnace seven times the regular heat, so it was so hot that the people who threw them in died outside of the furnace, and yet these three men were inside of the furnace and were saved from the fire. Or Daniel in the lion's den, or Jonah in the belly of the great fish, Paul in numerous stonings and snake bites and storms and shipwrecks, God's people will not die before their time. He has them in his hand. Psalm 139.16 says this, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your days were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. In the NAS, NASB 95 is that translation. God ordered the days of their lives, and he ordered the days of your lives as well. Every day of our lives, from beginning to end, and everything in our days, 
There are some who take this to mean that God just doles out all of the evil. He is the one responsible for, for our suffering here on earth. And he is the one who gives us these horrible, horrible things. However, just because we don't see the purpose in these evil, in these evil things that are done, it doesn't mean that God does not have a purpose within them. No one can argue that we don't suffer here on earth, but we can argue that God has a purpose and a plan through it all. God has planned and purposed everything so that he will be most glorified. Have you had evil done to you? God will be glorified through it, either by the redemption of that sinner or the punishment of that sin. God will be glorified. Has something absolutely terrible happened as far as like a natural consequence, an accident, a disaster, a disease? As tough a message as it is to hear, God will be glorified through it. My brother, I believe, is a good example of this. He was living apart from God for years. And I think it was two years ago that he had two really crazy accidents in the same summer. The first one, he fell off of a two-story roof onto concrete. When the paramedics got there, they told him, you should not be alive right now. A few months after that, he was driving home later at night, and he fell asleep on the off-ramp. He went right off the edge at about a six-foot drop. The van tumbled and turned and flipped, and it was mangled. My parents were around the corner, so when they got the call from the police, they went over. And the policemen, when they arrived, the police told them, no, people don't walk away from a crash like this. My brother got away with mere scratches. And then a few weeks after that, somebody else died on that same off-ramp, going off it in the same way that he did. But God preserves those who he has a purpose for. And just a few months after all of these accidents, my brother turned his life to Christ. He was saved through the horrible situations, the nasty consequences of driving off an on-ramp and falling off of a two-story building by the power of God alone. His suffering had a purpose. It was to drive him to seek the one true God. Job, the story of Job, as we all know, surely not many, if any, have suffered as much as Job. In a very short time, he lost his family, his wealth, his health, his status, and he was left with three friends who told him that it was all his fault, and a wife that was nagging him and telling him to go curse God and die. God allowed this to happen, and even if you, if you read the story, he actually permits Satan to, to be the one to do this all to him. And why? so that God would be glorified through it. The whole book points to us, uh, the, the reader and Job, not understanding God's purpose in what was happening. And we can't know. We don't always know the specific reason why, he's, why he is allowing horrible things to happen in our lives. But he has a plan through it, and he asks us not to question, but to trust in what he is doing. The, the blind man... Uh, the man born blind in John 9. It happened right before the good, sh the good shepherd that we talked about in John 10. Uh, the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was a common teaching in that day that if you had received some kind of illness, some kind of disease, it was the fault of sin. So somebody in his family must have sinned, and the disciples were coming to Jesus to ask this. But Jesus' answer is this. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but the works, that the works of God might be displayed in him. So sometimes our suffering is so that Jesus can display his power and he can get glory through it. The man's entire life of being blind was so that Jesus could work in that moment and show his power over the natural diseases to all the people who were around. As C.S. Lewis, a Christian theologian from the 1900s, says in his book, The Problem of Pain, we could ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon, upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God uses pain, disease, suffering to rouse us to seek him. We often get lulled into the monotony of our daily lives, asleep to God in the work that he is doing. We get caught up in, in work, in school, in friendships, rather than focusing on a relationship with God. And he uses pain to cause us to seek him again. So, God's protection will not always be our ideal. It will not always be our most comfortable or our easiest plan. But it will be the path that God chose to glorify himself through our lives. And in that, it will be for our great benefit, the benefit of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, according to Romans 8, 28. All things work for, together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I know that a lot of you are suffering with family trauma, with sin that was done to you, with disease or illness, but hear me, God will be glorified through it all. He will bring good from every struggle and trial of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is why Paul proclaims in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Even when it is hard, especially when it is hard, God has a plan for our lives, and that includes our suffering, our pain, and our disease. And his sheep should trust in his protection through those. Provision. The nourishment of the green pastures and the still waters in verses 2 and 3, or verse 2. This covers both this physical nourishment and the spiritual nourishment that we require. God has promised repeatedly through his word that he will cover our needs. Not necessarily all of our wants, but certainly our needs. Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8, when he was fleeing for his life in the wilderness, asking God to just kill him now because he was being chased by Queen Jezebel, who was trying to kill him, and he felt that he was alone, that there was no other people that were following God left in Israel. He felt that, he was not, that what he was doing was useless, that he wasn't able to change anybody's mind, and he thought that he was not able to accomplish anything, so he just asked God to end it there. But God, and God could have solved all of his problems by doing that. He could have just got rid of all of the, all of the evil people that in Israel and brought everybody back to himself. But instead, he gave Elijah rest, food, and water that sustained him for 40 days on his way to the mountain of the Lord, Mount Horeb. Elijah certainly would have wanted more. He would have wanted God to just end the queen and bring in a new leader that was righteous, that would bring the people of Israel back to worshiping the one true God. But God did not give Elijah his wants. He gave him his needs of food, water, and rest. So that's, the, that's a simple way of looking at the physical needs. 
But what about the spiritual nourishment? How can we, as the sheep of God, gain spiritual nourishment? Jesus tells us that the words of God are food for believers in Matthew 4, 4, and that he is the bread of life, good for sustaining your spirit in John 6, 35. Jeremiah 3, 15 says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So, read your Bibles, study the words of God, pray to Jesus, worship him, and you will be sustained by him. Be discipled and come to churches that teach from the word of God. Not just hype you up with the light teaching, the fancy lights and the fog machine, but the people who actually teach from the word exegetically. Hebrews criticizes those who only want light teaching in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be leaders, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You should be seeking something that requires you to think, to reflect uh, deeply, not, some, not simply a pragmatic TED talk. And now, hopefully you're getting that today, but if you're not, come back next week. Gina will be back. It'll be okay. As the modern Christian pastor, John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He satisfies all of our needs above and beyond, grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. We need to trust in his provision. So that's protection, provision. Now propitiation. Propitiation is the satisfaction of our debt to God. For our purposes today, we are speaking of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and the propitiation that he made for us. David's statement, he restores my soul in verse 3, is stated in other versions as this. He renews my life, or he refreshes my soul. And here's what Charles Spurgeon, a renowned pastor from the 1800s, wrote in his commentary of the Psalms about what it means for God to restore our souls. When the soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it is sinful, he sanctifies it. When it is weak, he strengthens it. He does it. His ministers could not do it if he did not. His, wor his word would not avail by itself. He restoreth my soul. Are any of us low in grace? Do we feel that our spirituality is at its lowest ebb? He who turns the ebb into a flood can soon restore our soul. Pray to him then for the blessing. Restore me, O shepherd of my soul. David repeatedly required God's forgiveness, a new life, wiping away the punishment from his, for his sins, and he trusted that God was faithful to forgive him in those moments. David was looking to the Messiah ahead that would come, and we can look back to the Messiah that has already come, Jesus Christ. When Jesus died upon that cross as a sinless, perfect man, he took the sin upon all who would believe in him upon the cross and caused it to die. The punishment for the sin of all who believe is paid, and we can be refreshed and preserved through this, through the propitiation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived the perfect life so we could, that we could not 
so that we can die the death that we could not pay. And all we must do is trust in his sacrificial death to receive the gift of freedom from the punishment of our sin. The same shepherd of David that restored his life, renewed his spirit, offers to do the same for all who believe in him. And we should trust in that propitiation. God, our shepherd, restores our soul through the payment of his son and through the work of the Holy Spirit, through his word and through worship of him. Pioneer. How does God pioneer for us? God is our guide, our trailblazer. As we are instructed by Paul, follow me as I follow Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. And in Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to be seeking after the paths that he has laid out for us. He leads me in paths of righteousness, is, the, is what uh, David says in the psalm. If we are being led by the Spirit, we ought to be following His will to the best of our ability, discerning our temptation from the will that He has for us. We should always seek His guidance in the Word, and we should always seek His guidance by the Holy Spirit, and follow the path of righteousness that He has set before us through the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. Through His perspective and the way that Jesus lived, He showed us how we ought to live as well. This does not mean that you will always get insider information from the Holy Spirit on whether you should turn left or right or whether you should buy that house or not. But what it does promise is when you are lost, when you are seeking Him, He will show you the path home. You can turn to Him and you will be saved. This is, this is the righteous path that Jesus was talking about. In, in, he speaks about it in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We should be seeking out how to do the best that we can, avoiding the temptations of this life and seeking after His will. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. His leading will take us away from our evil desires, from our temptations, and he will provide the way of escape if we follow him. His word shows us this path of righteousness. The Son shows us the practical outworking of how we should live and love, and we should seek others to lead, we should seek to lead others to the truth that is found in the life of Jesus Christ. Seek to know the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. And why does he do all of these things? Why does he protect, provide, propitiate, and pioneer for us? In the end of verse 3, for his name's sake. As previously mentioned, this is the ultimate goal of God, is getting the honor and the glory that he is due for everything that he does. Now, I have heard others say that God, is, God being jealous for his name, seeking after glory and honor, is wrong because he tells us not to be jealous. And so we should, he shouldn't be a jealous God. And yet throughout Scripture, he does call himself a jealous God. Paul Washer gave this kind of, um, uh, he's a modern, Christian, a modern Christian missionary, and he gave this kind of analogy uh, how to deal with this question in the American Gospel, Christ Crucified, a fantastic documentary if you haven't watched it yet. 
If you built a massively successful industry and I walked in, slapped my name on the door and started to take all the profits from the company, I started to take all the honor and the praise from the employees, I started to use your business and do as I pleased, pleased with it, you would be jealous for the name that you built. And it wouldn't be sinful of you to get the police, come in there and take your name back, remove me and get what is rightfully yours. How much more so with God, the one true judge of the world? He is the only one deserving of praise. He is the only one deserving of honor. He is the only one deserving of glory. And yet, we, can, we get mad at him for being a jealous God when we give it to everybody else and everything else that we possibly can. As John Calvin said, uh, he, the, man is, the heart of man is an, a factory of idols. We work after everything else and get distracted by so many things and worship them rather than worshiping the one true God. Let's turn to him and worship him the way that he deserves. For everything is done for his name's sake. Back to the text here. In Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. In other words, even though I am surrounded by death and I should be cowering in fear, I can stand tall in the protection of God. David demonstrated this throughout his life, but I think there was no time more clearly than when he faced Goliath. Goliath was a giant, and David was just a little boy. Goliath was a warrior, and David was a shepherd. Goliath had armor and powerful weapons, and David had a sling and smooth stones. The whole of the army of Israel was cowering away from fighting the Philistine champion Goliath. But David had something else to say in 1 Samuel 17, verses 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. His faith was in God and his faithful protection. And this points us back to what we talked about earlier, that we, God has numbered our days and we should trust that he will keep us until our days are over. The valley of the shadow of death. The idea here is the valley between two cliffs. It's dark and it's hidden and predators used to hide in there. Robbers would lie in wait to steal from the shepherds that would come through. But in the midst of us walking through this valley, we should not fear. I, fe I will fear no evil. And why? For you are with me. God is faithful, and he is with us always. He will protect us when we need him to. Along in, it's always within his will. Even the suffering, even the pain is in his will. He is there with us through it. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was the club used to ward off wild animals or thieves through those, val those rocky crags. 
whereas the staff could be used to prod the sheep in the right direction, to bring them back onto the path, to hook them away from the, the, the snake or the, the poisonous food or the bad water. God defends us and directs us in his own way as he protects, provides, propitiates, and pioneers for us. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Think about how foolish this would seem, walking in front of those who seek to kill you, your enemies, your, your, greatest, uh, your greatest enemies. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Think about how foolish it would seem. You go and sit down and you have a meal right in front of them while they are trying to kill you. That's the level of protection that, God ha- that David trusted God with. He was constantly chased by his enemies, but for years at a time, he was running away. Through the wilderness, in caves, in battles, God kept him through it all and blessed him in the midst of those times. And that's what the anointing means here. You anoint my head with oil. Uh, it's, it, was show, it was used to show God's blessing upon a person. It was what they did when they chose a new king. They would dump oil on their head. And it was to signify that God had chosen that person. So David here is saying that, yes, I have been blessed for all of my life. I have been blessed by being provided for and protected through all of these things. And it's purely a gift from God. A blessing that was bestowed on him, not for what he had done, but simply because God had chosen him. Because David was one of his sheep. My cup overflows just shows how much the, the oil was poured upon him, right? The cup is just over, overflowing with the oil that he was putting on his, on his life. The th- all of the times that God was protecting him, providing for him, propitiating for him, and pioneering for him were overflowing this cup of blessing that was going to be poured on his life. And it was only because of God's choice. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Let's get some definitions to the original words here. Uh, Goodness and mercy. Mercy is the loyal love, the faithful love, the covenantal, unending, unflinching love that only God can give. And this this word for follow, it's, it's closer in meaning to chasing or pursuing after. It's not just like a, okay, we're going to walk along here behind you. It's, I am going to catch you and get you. And so the, the, the love of God, the goodness of God are actually running after us, coming to catch us, coming to grab onto us and lay hold of our lives. Further than this, the words are personif- personified. Goodness and mercy are the ones committing the action of following us. So it's not just that we are being followed by them, but the ultimate expressions of them. God himself is chasing us down to show us his goodness and his loving kindness. And for how long? How long will this happen? All the days of our lives. All the days of our lives, God will chase us down with his loyal love and his mercy and his goodness coming after us. Now, you might be thinking, but Jesus promises all kinds of trials and persecutions for those who follow after him. How can we make sense of both of these texts? We've been talking about it all morning. God's way of protecting and providing for us may not be what we have chosen for ourselves. If we had had full control and could lay out our lives, we may not have chosen the exact path that God gave us. 
but it's not about our choice. It's about our good and His glory. Back to Romans 12, 2, I already mentioned earlier this morning. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. And if we know that from Romans 8, 28, that all things will come to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, then even the sufferings, even the pain, even the disease have a purpose for our good and for His glory. Romans 5, 3 tells us this, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when you suffer for God, your suffering is beneficial. When you suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, it is for your good and for His glory. When David says that goodness will follow him all the days of his life, it doesn't mean it's a short-sighted, momentary pleasure, but an eternal gain. It might sting in the short term, it might be painful in the, in the right now, but God will reward those who suffer for his sake, and it will be for our good and his glory. At the same time that David was uh, proclaiming this over his own life, he noticed that his need for mercy was there. His lo God's loyal love and His mercy was necessary in David's life, just like it's necessary in all of our lives. Just because David's life was put in the pages of Scripture for us and we can see the specific ways that he needed forgiveness doesn't mean it's any less than what we need in our lives because we aren't as well known as he. So, no one will be perfect on earth until Christ calls us home and we reign with Him. But this doesn't cast us out of God's kingdom because His loyal love and His mercy is coming after us, and it's given in excess for all of our sins in the death of Jesus Christ. This passage ends with a glorious reminder that we are all, or for all who are God's sheep. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew to whom he belonged, and therefore he knew that God would keep him, and you can have this same assurance Back to the passage of the Good Shepherd in John 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, if you are one of His sheep, and you have heard His call, and if you have come to Jesus, the one true Savior, you are saved. Not you can be, not you might be, you are saved in Christ if you are one of His sheep. So if you are listening this morning and you hear Jesus calling to you, if you're feeling the conviction that you are not following this one true God, then please come to Him and He will never let you go. You will be held in the hand of the Father for eternity and nothing will ever, ever remove you. Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8 says this, 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean you're going to pray one insincere prayer one time, and that you will be a follower of Jesus Christ. But you, you can actually be a follower of Jesus Christ if you seek Him truly, if you seek Him sincerely, if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find, and if you knock, you will. The door will be opened to you if you seek earnestly. This means that you should actually be trying to seek God in your life, trying to have Him, to have him reveal Himself to you. And if you do seek God through conversation with believers, through prayer to God, through reading the Bible and reading about Him, if you realize your need for your Savior from your sins and believe in Christ's sacrificial death, you will be saved, and you will know that you are one of his sheep. Let me summarize the text once more, and then we will stand, read it aloud, and I will pray for, in closing for our time together this morning. This psalm speaks about the shepherd of Israel, the shepherd of believing Jews and Gentiles alike. David spoke about the four actions that the shepherd proclaims, uh, that the shepherd does in our lives, protects, provides, propitiates, and pioneers for us. The God, the shepherd, does all of this for his glory. His protection extends as far as he wills. His provision over all of our lives. His propitiation, and un- never-ending, cannot be reached. And his, and his pioneering is true and earnest if we seek after what he tells us to do in his word. So, if you are not a Christian here this morning, I would pray that you seek after this one true God, this shepherd. Because for all who don't trust him, it's their purpose here to store up wrath upon themselves. The punishment for their sins will be paid. If that's you, turn and seek God. But if you are one of his sheep, then you and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that is to his glory and for our good. Let's stand and read this text once more as a praise to our great God this morning. Read with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let me pray. Our great and mighty God, we thank you for giving us your inspired word. We pray that you would bring us this teaching to our remembrance this week, that we would pray that we would get protection, your provision, and glorify you in your propitiation and your pioneering in our life. 
We pray that we would be conformed to the image of your Son this week as we prepare for his return, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever with you. Amen.